Hello, Nico, Ornamental Conifer. Welcome to the show. So on Radical Strategies, we're concerned with the question of how to have a sustainable creative career. And this is something that I think you might have figured out. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm just gonna, I have the exact same question. Ah. Well, we'll see what you've learned so far anyway. <laughs> see where we end up with from there. So why don't we start out maybe with a quick introduction to who you are, what you do? Okay, my name's Nico Slater. Uh, I come from England, currently live in Los Angeles. And for the past 15 years, I've been working under the pseudonym Ornamental Conifer. Um, it was a moniker I decided upon 15 years ago for no specific reasons other than I wanted to have some sort of anonymity. But I also kind of thought into the future thinking that if I was to ever run a studio and have people working with me, I'd rather they worked for a, you know, a nondescript entity rather than just working for my name. So I, I had grand plans 15 years mm. ago. <laughs> How would you describe your practice? Uh, it's ever evolving. I mean, it's, it's always, it's been quite commercially focused, predominantly because of the requirement of, of finance, you know, you need money. Mm. So I've always, I've, I've gone, I've worked commercially for a long time, which often means that can dictate the process. And, and sometimes I have to create digital work, but it all comes from an analog approach initially. So I guess it's, it's, it's yeah it's commercial art hmm. analog well to start out why don't we learn a little bit more about how you got started um yeah can you pick up the story as you were thinking about maybe painting and how that progressed yeah um so i, I think that I studied graphic design at university, but I actually started that degree relatively late in comparison to others. So I started as a mm. mature student when I was 23. And mm. I'd already explored, you know, the kind of whimsical adventures of youth. So I'd already been out to parties and had girlfriends and done all that stuff. So being at university, a lot of my peers at the time were off doing that, whereas I was solely focused on, on learning as much as I could. And I had a wonderful set of tutors who were all quite analog in their yeah. approach. There was a screen printing department, there was a letterpress department, there were graphic designers that would reference how they would cut and paste before computers existed. So I learned a lot from that. Can um, I just jump in? I, I'm curious what you did in the years prior, like the five <laughs> years before you went to college. What yeah. were you doing? Um, I guess just exploring. Um, mm -hmm. I left school at a young age and then I, I, in, in the UK you, you finish school at 16 after doing a set of exams and then you typically would go on to what's called a sixth form college from 16 mm -hmm. through 18 and you study five subjects I think there and then you specialize in one in a degree and but I, I missed out that sixth form college and during that period when my friends were doing that I just worked you know odd jobs and um, car spares shops etc and and really focused my time on kind of making my own work at that period. So I was doing a lot mm -hmm. of graffiti. I was making magazines based on that graffiti. I was doing a lot of fanzines and T-shirt designs and customizing clothing and stuff. So it was all just self-initiated kind of fun. But then to, to earn my money, I would just do part-time jobs. And, um, yeah, there wasn't much 
longevity in it. I didn't enjoy going to work in kitchens and car spares mm. for my day to day. So I, I had aspirations to do something more and I was encouraged to go and study. And it was the best thing I'd ever done, honestly. It was, you know, it was such an eye opener for me to turn up at a university where they had all of this access to all of these different departments. And I knew I was going to be there for three years. So I just made friends with everybody in every department and was mm. allowed to use photography studios and screen printing and go into the fine art departments, build a studio for myself. I was woodworking. It was just an incredible, like immersive experience. Something similar to what I believe probably the Bauhaus was like, you know, and that was a major mm. inspiration on me graphically in that, that era because, you know, you see it everywhere. Every art gallery you go to in the museum shops, it's always a Bauhaus book. And I'd, I'd latched onto that at a young age, like 13, 14. I really liked modernism. And um, being in this university environment made me feel like I was like living this Bauhaus life. So I really did every single type of artwork that you could have created there as it as it got close to my degree show i put quite a lot of effort into doing something that would hopefully get me noticed because in london a lot of the degree shows are then attended by people from the design industry and they will mm -hmm. kind of scout new talent and offer opportunities to work for them and i ended up getting an internship at wallpaper magazine which was ideal for me because i really, really was interested in publishing at the time and luckily going there, I realized that it was completely not what I was meant to do. So I turned up on my first day with my cutting mat and my pencil case and my sketchbook and all of this mm. equipment. And they said, what's that for? Here's your desk. There's your computer. And can mm. you send all those PDFs to the editor? And I was like, oh, do I not get to do any design work? And, and they were like, well, no, you know, you're an intern. And they explained the, the hierarchy within the office and saying, you know, you become a junior, then a midway and a senior and then ultimately no one has any power apart from the creative director and I was like no. oh this isn't what I thought it was like and um so I I kind of I, I did my time there and I, and I learned from it but I didn't continue that so I I then went and did a little bit of part-time work with a, a company that were doing very kind of elaborate window installations for stores during Christmas period and various different times and I learned a lot there too in terms of like production and and getting my work in, in large scale in well-known stores. Um, and it was also around a period when the kind of handwritten type was going through a bit of a kind of, I don't know what the word is, but it was not a revival, but it was kind of blossoming. And lots of people were employing these people to hand-draw type for editorial and mm. magazines like Lucky Peach. And they had all this hand-drawn type. And so I... I don't even know how I got the gigs, but I started doing a lot of custom hand lettering for people. Mm -hmm. um, so I learned how to deal with clients and deadlines and how the deliverables were expected and stuff. So that was something that was interesting for me. Um, and so alongside all of this too, I was working at a screen print studio called Print Club London, which was a member's studio that you could access 24 hours a day and you could create your own entire editions there. Mm. And I got to know the owners and became friends with them and ended up teaching workshops. So there was a, a day called Pull a Siki where creative teams would come for a day off and learn how to screen print. So then I got to meet all of these people from like, you know, mother agency and all these cool London agencies were coming mm -hmm. to learn how to screen print from me. And I made contacts there and then was showed them my work. And it kind of, it was all pretty organic and grew mm. there. Um, and the more I got approached for custom lettering, the more I realized my lettering needed to be 
applied to a variety of surfaces, some of which were outside. So then I learned to sign paint. And I thought that, you know, at that time, there weren't classes in it. There was really very little information online because it, we, this is like 20, 2008, 2009. Um, so I ended up approaching a guy on a, on a canal boat who I had heard had painted some other ones and he gave me a book, hmm. and, um, a nice guy called Julian. And then I don't know his second name, but I ended up keeping that book for quite a long time and sort of taught myself to sign paint from it. Um, which then opened up new opportunities again. So people wanted signs. And then I quickly realized I didn't like painting signs because people often had a, like an idea or a sign, like a graphic in mind. And I was like, oh no, I won't paint your idea. I'll only paint my own ideas. So mm. um, that didn't, I didn't really make it as a journeyman at that point. I just was known as a grumpy artist. <laughs> so at what point were you starting to consider having a name that then ornamental conifer or maybe you're still using your, your personal name uh, and promoting that as a, an entity, as an artist of some form to be commissioned. Yeah. I suppose I was, I was ornamental conifer from the get-go. Uh, it, mm. it helped in certain respects because I felt like my own name, Nikolai Slater, was quite difficult to spell and I didn't, I mm. didn't people heard me properly when I told them the name. So I, had this, you know, alternative name. And like I said previously, it was also the idea that one day it may become a studio. Um, mm -hmm. But that, you know, the, the brand and how it came about wasn't, it, it wasn't planned. It was just um, a series of events. And I suppose alongside all of this, I was also in this kind of custom motorcycle world in, in London and with these mm. the people who were same age as me, were all building custom bikes inspired by Japan. And, and we kind of were known somewhat by some brands and we, and we were used as ambassadors for, for lookbooks and stuff. So that also coincided with me being a freelance artist because then those companies would employ me too and I would end up doing events for them or we like rode to the south of France and we documented it all and it was this kind of I don't know it was a birth it, they weren't there was no such thing as an influencer but they were ambassadors and mm -hmm. I was in this network of people in East London that were kind of exploiting that I suppose but in, in a very good way they're still very close friends of mine there's people that gave me those opportunities yeah yeah but it helps so, me and, so you've told me that there was a period of time where you were considering uh, being an artist that's shown at galleries and you pursued that for a while and you had an agent and you had meetings and that that type of thing can you talk us through that phase yeah, I mean, that phase has actually occurred probably two or three times significantly, the latest one being when I moved to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, I had, I believed I was watching something from a distance. I was seeing these artists leave San Francisco and moving to L.A., and I saw artists from New York moving over to L.A., and I'd also, you know, I've always been extremely inspired by David Hockney just simply because he was one of the first artists I was ever introduced to from my parents mm -hmm. and he had moved to Los Angeles too and I thought oh what is this wonderful place it must be this thriving opportunity to to be a gallery artist you know so I moved here with my wife without never I'd never lived here before but I moved here and 
in a different so in london everything is condensed into some a smaller area so east london there are a lot of different galleries and you can get to know those people very easily because you're condensed whereas i moved to los angeles and all the galleries were all over the place and it was like a two-hour mm. drive so on opening nights i would try to go and meet other artists and gallerists and you know one show would be in highland park and then i'd have to get in the car for 40 minutes and drive to hollywood and do that and then you know, I never, I never really connected, and I, I realized very soon that there is so much ego attached to it that it feels like you're not successful if you're not in a gallery. Mm. And r- the reality is that I actually feel a lot more successful producing multiple pieces of work that are sustaining me financially, but it's also getting out there into the world because I have a lot of friends who exhibit in galleries and they might only sell half the show, but they've spent a year on it. And then when you look at that, it doesn't relate to a, a, an enough of an income to survive on. So then they have to be working elsewhere. And I never really wanted to do that. I didn't want to compromise my hours in my day. I'd much rather just be focused on my own work and that commercial side of things. I was lucky enough to go into it from the get-go saying, if you're employing me, you're only employing me. I'm not taking art direction from anybody else. Mm-hmm. I'm open to suggestions and I like to collaborate, but I don't want to be given an idea and then be told to produce it. There are other people that are willing to do that. So I feel like I still act as an artist. And mm-hmm. yeah. But my day-to-day life is a lot more, you know, checking in with clients and having a variety of projects on at once. Whereas if I was a conceptual kind of painter and was allowed to just focus on my own thing, I would develop themes and narratives far beyond where I get to because you know I'm constrained by time so I've got a month to create a narrative but if I was working on a show and I was allowed an entire year you know that's that's an entirely different uh, proposition and I don't even know if I'd be able to keep the momentum up I might fizzle out halfway through. Can you describe your practice in a bit more detail what your setup is now the types of projects that you're doing say over the course of a year um, for someone that is not totally familiar with ornamental conifer and all the different uh, sides of of the different creative projects yeah it's it is it's very varied um so there's you know there are probably uh three main sections one of which is i'm an art director for an agency called race service as you know uh mm. i'm also ornamental conifer which is a practicing artist um predominantly commercial but also commission based so someone might uh like my style and send me a bicycle to paint or a helmet and i i kind of do maybe a handful of commissions per year maybe up to 10 commissions per year Mm -hmm. Uh, and commercial projects range from i've just done one recently for uh some some skins for cars in video games i've done apparel collections with other brands some collaborative some just simply graphics mm-hmm. um i have been working on uh rebranding for another another uh, company and and coming up with the kind of the feel of their brand as well as just basic logo types um and then i guess I'm, i've also been in the past year acting more as a consultant with another company where i offer them something so i'm technically the cco of this company but um i consider myself more of a consultant so i just kind of dip in and then have ideas and that's that's as broad as talking about marketing as well as strategy and and how mm. to the brand you told me a story once that i would like to touch upon again and we were talking about work ethic and um 
And the thing that might separate a creative practitioner who's able to build a sustainable lifetime career versus one that might do something for a while, fizzle out and then join a more typical nine to five gig. There's nothing wrong with that, but we're trying to find our way to have sustainable long-term creative careers here. And you were telling me about a moment where you were living with several artists and you would work and work and work and work and they weren't. And um, I'd love for you to tell that story again through the lens of how is it that one can develop a career that's sustainable over an entire lifetime in the cre- any creative field? Yeah. Um, so the period in time you're referring to was directly after my graduation. And like I said, as a mature student in university, the rest of my classmates were, you know, around three to four to five years younger than me at that time. So as when we moved out, typical thing occurred. We all kind of banded together and we're like, let's all, you know, let's keep this energy and, and go somewhere else. And when we were at university, we'd all been kind of collaborating on different projects and doing things. And so we all got a, an art studio in East London and we lived in it. So it was a large converted warehouse surrounded by multiple other converted warehouses. And, you know, we all crammed ourselves in there to get cheap rent. And it became a kind of pseudo bohemia and people were kind of experimenting with drugs and not not excessively, but, you know, it was it was the first time when that kind of stuff was rearing its head in my life properly. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't interested in that. I wanted I had a goal and I knew that the art studio was a means to an end. And the fact that I had to live there was actually more of a burden to me. I had I slept under my table for a while. I built a small box to sleep in. Everyone else kind of was enjoying this energy and thinking of it more as a party space. Um, mm. So I, I would often get frustrated with these people because I was also trying to invite clients around and show them my work and everything. So there was kind of a, a cross-conflict there when a client would arrive and then there was a guy in his underpants playing video games in the corner. It was kind of not a professional environment <laughs> and I would get frustrated, as would they with me, because I would be telling them to turn the music down, and etc. And they would always play Neil Young, uh, old man, you know, old man, take a look at yourself. Every time I, I walk, know that song. <laughs> every time I walk through the door, so forgive uh. me. But yeah, so I think really the only way I got out of that scenario was moving out, and and they're all very close friends, and I don't blame them for what they were doing at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was actually quite fun. It's just I had a I had a bit of a an ambitious drive behind me, and I really wanted to to learn how to be an artist properly. So and that and that required twenty four seven kind of pursuit of something anyway and they were kind of i've heard of a particular scenario happening for people that move to berlin because we know that berlin is a international creative center and it's one of the few international creative centers that's still somewhat cheap to live in compared to the tokyos and london's and new york's of the world but there's a scenario that that a creative person will move there and they'll just get lost in the the party scene and no one yeah. will ever hear from them again. And I'm, I'd like to extract from you a bit of advice for a creative person who's leaving college, who's, you know, into the social scene, you know, the whole way that one can live as an artiste versus make artistic works. Uh, yeah. But what advice do you have to someone who is coming out of college, is getting ready to go, has got a lot of energy, wants to explore, all that stuff, um, 
yeah, w- which way would you guide them so that in the end, say five years later, they have a solid creative career? I would, I would strongly suggest that people surrounded themselves with other ambitious people. Uh, mm. I don't think it's necessary to surround yourself with successful people. It's not always the best case because you will ultimately kind of question your position amongst them and, and mm-hmm. you'll compare yourself. Whereas if it's if they're just other ambitious people and are driven, they don't have to be driven in the same field as you that you might, you know, my, my wife was the one that really got me out of it at the time. She was my girlfriend, but she wanted to create a hair, a hair studio where she had one-on-one appointments with clients. So that had nothing to do with my art practice and, and mm-hmm. being a graphic designer, but she was so driven in that, that, that was good energy to be around and other friends were putting on, you know, exhibitions and, and creating work themselves. So I, I liked being around them. And then I think it's also, it's, it's about, there's a balance between confidence and then being a little humble when you're mm. around people who are more successful. So don't kind of put yourself on their level and assume that you're as good as them, but let, let them know that you you want to learn from them and be humble enough to say, look, I admire what you do. Don't make them feel awkward by telling them that they're your hero or anything. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you belong and you deserve to get advice from these other creatives that have been in the game longer than you. But at the same time, bear in mind that you, you are asking them to impart valuable knowledge that they potentially had to make many mistakes learning. So you are getting something very... Um, valuable from them so be humble and respect that but at the same time don't be scared to ask for it and and just learn as much as you can just be a sponge it sounds like you're talking about mentorship yeah 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 i think it is it's it is mentorship and i've had a few people who have been very significant and some of them don't even realize you know some of them Mm. have become friends and in the background i've been thinking oh this is you know such an amazing relationship for me they just see me as a friend and i whereas the the reverse behind the doors is me thinking like wow what an honor that i get to speak to this person because they really inspire me Mm -hmm. and uh you know sometimes you get a little emotional and you tell them and it all goes a bit awkward and you're like okay (laughs) thanks for the help yeah but yeah, it's just, you know, go, just don't be scared to ask people and surround yourself with as much ambition as you, you possibly can find. This interview is part of season seven of Radical Strategies. And for each season, I usually try and think of a, a theme um, that I have all the different guests answer. And the theme for this season is adulting for creatives. <laughs> and um, I'd like to hear about your adult life as a a creative as someone that's been pursuing a practice and finding your way with it moving around the world um that is able to make ends meet be a parent all that stuff um how would you describe your journey through the lens of adulting being able to be a functional adult (laughs) so it's not always straightforward for creatives yeah um I don't know. I, I recently, you know, 19 months ago, I had a child. My wife had a child and mm-hmm. was born. And that changed things a lot because I realized that uh, time is extremely valuable. Before, I was probably a little more fluid with my time. I would mm-hmm. go to the studio early. I would stay late. I would go in on Saturdays and Sundays. And now I would much rather be with Lola as much as possible. So I leave the studio earlier, which means I am a lot more 
um, conscious about managing my time and structuring mm. days correctly. Whereas before yeah. I've been a bit more whimsical. So I don't feel like I'm doing less time now in the studio than I was, but I'm creating more work, um, which could also just coincide with maturing slightly and, and kind of finessing certain parts of my, my company, not my company, my, my practice. Um, but the adulting thing, I'm not sure because I, I have an imposter syndrome, you know, I still think of mm. myself as someone extremely young and inexperienced and kind of figuring it out. Um, mm -hmm. But I've been doing this for quite a while. So I don't know. <laughs> I think that adulting in the creative world, this, I, I guess I don't really feel like an adult in this creative world. I feel like a child still. Um, mm. I think that the creative career tends to go until you die. You know, you see a lot of these designers in their 70s and 80s who are being encouraged to retire and they're saying, why would I? This is just what I want to do. It's not a job. It's not like being a civil engineer where you actually, you're looking forward to being 65 and switching off and, and you know, relaxing for the end of your years. So I don't know. I think that I'm still in the infancy of being yeah. active now. Well, fantastic conversation. Um, for anyone that wants to learn more about ornamental conifer, uh, where can they find more info? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't have a website. I never have had one. But you can find images on Instagram. is probably the easiest place to go to, ornamental conifer. Um, or you can, like, Google it, I suppose, is the best thing. Sometimes videos pop up. I mean, they're probably all massively embarrassing. But at the end of the day, they've got nothing to hide. There's lots yeah. of videos of me with long hair, probably smoking cigarettes, which I no longer do. But uh, there's bad videos of me out there. Go find them, have a laugh, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, last question, and uh, this is a question that gets repeated for all the Radical Strategies guests. And what is your Radical Strategy of the day? What is your final piece of advice for someone who's just starting out thinking about how they can get a creative career going? Feel like I covered it a little earlier, but it, it's honestly it's just going, going out there and feeling like you, you belong already. So don't be nervous and just go out and and ask the questions. There's no other way of learning. I don't think that you're going to be able to pursue a career as a creative without a network. It's extremely difficult to do it if you're isolated. Um, so it's finding your network and finding your tribe. As cheesy as that sounds, but getting getting to know the people who will appreciate your work and then often you you kind of some i personally have taken quite you know hard pivots in my career because of certain people that i've met and i've met them intentionally mm. uh, I've gone out and i've i've seeked that information so it's getting out there and doing as much as possible and continuing to develop your own personal style and, and sharing it as much as possible. And don't rely on the internet for that. It's a wonderful tool, but it's only one of the tools. So don't rely on it solely. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Nico. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Rod. It was lovely. <laughs>